gospel, what exalts Jesus, what proclaims him. And, and to see the bad is when we fail in those things. So, okay, moving on. Um, Paul, now that we're getting close, we're getting close to our passage. Paul had a prior life in his community that was one of power and authority. He received his authority directly from the high priest. Okay, so th this is the high priest, the one man who is the mediator between God and, and his people, Israel. And Paul received authority directly from him. Uh, and under that authority, he went from house to house, dragging away men and women to prison that were found to be followers of Jesus. Paul studied under, under one of the most respected rabbis of his day and was apparently a star pupil. He strictly adhered to religious ritual, followed all the Old Testament law, and no doubt was considered a godly man in his community. Tonight, in our passage, we'll read that being a follower of Jesus means putting no value on all the prestige and success even religious success that one could achieve. I'll, we, can, we can turn now, uh, Philippians uh, chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, and I'm just going to go through it now, uh, verse by verse, and, and uh, talk a little bit about uh, what Paul is saying here. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. The, the finally here should not be taken as Paul wrapping things up. Um, he's only midway through this letter. The NIV renders um, uh, 
this translation as, as further, and most people agree that that is a better reading. So think also, as in, as for the other things I have to say, these next things as which everything Paul has said are to be marked by rejoicing in the Lord. He says he's getting back to the same things, covering old ground. Now, we can't be exactly sure of what he's referring to, but Paul has previously talked about ill-motive uh, teachers. He's talked about opponents of the church uh, in the first chapter. And so now, um, in this new line of discussion, he's going to tell them to beware of Judaizers, those that will teach that you must follow Old Testament law, most notably circumcision, to be right with God. Verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This verse is a, a threefold warning. Look out, look out, look out. Uh, against teachers that would distort the gospel of Jesus. It should be remembered, it's been discussed before, that Philippi was a Roman colony, and apparently there was not even a synagogue. Um, as Paul's first encounter in, in uh, Philippi was with Gentiles praying um, by the river. There wasn't initially much of a Jewish presence um, but Paul, while in prison, is apparently uh, concerned with the influence of traveling Jewish teachers who might come to Philippi and declare that faith in Jesus alone was not enough for these new believers, that they would have to add something to Jesus in order to be right with God. This is Paul denouncing these teachers in the strongest language. Maybe we can't even hear it in, in our culture. Um, when he's calling them dogs, we're not thinking domesticated cute puppies. Dogs were street scavengers, unclean animals to the Jew, and the term was often used by Jews as a harsh criticism against Gentiles. And here Paul is using it against these, these uh, potential uh, teachers uh, that would come into Philippi. These teachers were professing to be followers of the law, yet Paul refers to them as evildoers. Finally, he says that what they're proposing is not an outward sign of being set apart for God. It's a mutilation of the flesh. Paul says in, in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is arguing against teachers who are requiring men to be circumcised. So in what sense does he say, they're not the circumcision, we are? Well, circumcision was meant to be a sign, an outward sign that people were marked, were set apart to be God's people. And Paul is saying, no, we are the ones who are set apart outward appearance of religious conformity is not what matters. And here's his argument from Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. 
This is not Paul, by the way, announcing some major shift in God's plan. As far back as the initial writings of the Old Testament, God is making this point. In Deuteronomy 30, God is telling Moses that Israel will fall away, that they will turn from God. But if they return and seek to obey him, uh, God says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind that you may live. Outward religious observance has never been the the goal of God. It has always been a heart devoted to him. And even in the Old Testament, which was requiring Old Testament law to be followed, we see time and again uh, God saying, "You're, you're missing the point. So, for example, um, in Isaiah, uh, God is, is announcing through the prophet Isaiah that the people have turned away and judgment is coming. And, and, and I'll just paraphrase what he's telling us in uh, the first chapter of Isaiah. God is, tells the people through Isaiah, don't bring me any more sacrificial offerings. They're a burden to me. I abhor your solemn assemblies. Seek justice, do good. And, and he goes on and on how he is not satisfied, he is not pleased with them following r- ritual while they are not turning to him with their whole heart. Following the law does not mask the condition of our heart before God. And then Jesus comes in in the Sermon of the Mount. He says it multiple times, uh, you know, affirming this point that God's desire is for our hearts to be pure, not to have some external religious conduct. So just one example, uh, Jesus said, you heard it said that you shall not murder, one of the Ten Commandments, but I say to you, anyone who carries anger in their heart toward a brother, you are liable to judgment. So that's what Paul is referring to when he said, no, following the law, listening to these, uh, these men who might come in and say that you have to be circumcised, you have to do other things, um, that does not make you the true circumcision. And he gives a three-part test then in this verse as to who, <laughs> who is the true circumcision. He says, first, they worship by the Holy Spirit. This is not a dry, ritual-driven human effort. It's God himself changing our hearts, circumcising the heart, causing us to see the majesty of God so that we might worship him as he deserves. Second, it says, they glory in Christ Jesus. Now, we typically think of glory as a noun, you know, God's glory. It's his majesty. It's all that makes him great. But here, it's being used as a verb. The word that's, that's uh, translated glory here means to exalt in, to boast in, to put your confidence in something. There's always an object to this boasting. And um, so Paul says here, 
if you're going to boast, um, boast in Jesus. If you're going to have confidence, it's to be in Jesus. And that's directly opposed to the last test that Christians put no confidence in the flesh. They do not consider that any life achievement has any value before God. It gives no advantage. It's not something to bank your future on. So all confidence in Jesus, no confidence in flesh, in achievement, in anything that we can do. Verse 4 Paul then says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul just tells us, um, don't put any confidence in the flesh, our achievements, and then he's about to go forward and give us a list of his achievements and his advantages by birth. Why is he doing that? He's He's letting us know, he's letting his readers know that it's not that I don't think I've done enough, that I don't think that my accomplishments were too small um, to have earned me favor with God. It's that they're worthless. I'll show you what accomplishments are and just show you all of that is worthless. He also says here, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, if anyone else. So he's talking to these Philippians, and he said, look, I've done all this from birth. I'm a member of, of Israel. I was born and raised in all this Old Testament law. The Philippians know they don't measure up to that. But Paul's saying, if anyone thinks they have reason, so if there's any... <laughs> Any uh, Judaizer traveling teacher that comes in and they want to show you their credentials, uh, I'm willing to stack mine up against anyone. Then he goes into his list, beginning in verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. So we read that he was circumcised eight days after birth per the requirement given to Abraham in Genesis 17. He was one of the people of Israel. He's no convert. He was born a member of God's Old Testament people. He was born into the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is the one tribe when the, when the nation of Israel split into two. Benjamin alone sided with Judah. That's where... Um, it was the, the line of King David through whom the Messiah would come. The tribe of Benjamin was allotted Jerusalem as part of their tribe's territory. That's where uh, God's presence was, where his temple was. So there'd be much advantage in being, you know, born of the tribe of, of Benjamin. Paul says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was raised to observe all that God required in the law, and he was a Pharisee, the most stringent adherers to the law. He was devoted to the study of Scripture, as well as seeing that it was followed and passed on to future generations. In verse 6, he adds, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
Paul was not simply an academic. He didn't just study scripture for the sake of knowledge. He was passionate about the things of God. So much so that he sought to harm the followers of Jesus because he thought they were blaspheming God. But zeal, not grounded in truth, and specifically the truth about Jesus, is worthless. And this next one is a dagger to those that pride themselves in following God on their own strength. In Paul's knowledge of the law, in his zealous desire to follow all that he said, he considered himself blameless. This was law following in terms of observable conduct. No marks against him that anyone could see. But in verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What type of gain is Paul discounting? All types of gain. He doesn't care whether you were impressed with his credentials at all, whether you think there was more that could be added to it, um, or whether you thought, wow, that's a lot. Whatever value you put on that, Paul says, I count it all as loss. Not because he wasn't good at it, but because it has no value if it is not grounded in devotion to Jesus. Verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So, um, He's counting everything as loss, and, and the, the types of things that, that Paul mentioned are inherited advantages, those that came to him by birth, and earned advantages, things that, that he did, that he achieved. So he kind of gave us those things from his Jewish upbringing, and I'm just curious, what type of things could we be tempted to fall into and put confidence in, misplace our confidence in, in our Christian community. Any thoughts? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, someone hands you a microphone, right. Microphone, yeah, yeah, even if it's on right. That's a great advantage. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I was born in a Christian nation with Christian principles. I have a family that, that grew up in the church. Um, I went to youth group, uh, you know, a, a Christian camp every summer. I prayed a prayer. Um, my church attendance, spotless. I volunteer everything I'm asked for. Uh, I give financially. Um, yeah, I have a position of the church. I have a, the approval of my peers, all of that, right? Um, Paul saying everything is lost. That, I, I, you know, that is the easiest question I've ever asked. My wife says that sometimes I ask questions that are confusing and people don't know what I'm getting at. But that question, 
only had one wrong answer. It says everything is lost. So unless someone answered faith in Christ, that was the only wrong answer you could have, you could have given. Um, so why does he count everything as lost? Again, it's a comparison, right? What he's achieved in life versus the value of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with studying Scripture, trying to live as God commands, living before others in such a way um, as to have their respect. And a heart devoted to Jesus should and will do those things. But if those things are done absent Jesus, exalting him, worshiping him, they get us nowhere. When we consider this and consider the worth of Jesus to the absence of everything else, let's not stop at the checklist of the day. If you know what I mean, we can go through our day and say, you know, I, I read a couple chapters of my Bible. I, I spent some time in prayer. Work went pretty well without a hitch. Didn't blow up at anybody. Um, went smoothly. The kids are in bed now with zero incidents. And you end up saying, that was a good day. Not according to Paul. And I'm not saying that we won't go through times when, when our devotions can be dry. Um, it happens to me, and I, I'm not saying we won't go through days that can become routine and we fall into a pattern. That can happen. But I'm saying let's fight against that being our normal. Fight to fill each day considering what Jesus has done for us and praising him for it. Think deeply what do I need to change? What sin do I need to root out to become more like him? Um, how can I spend this day, this moment, as his representative, reflecting his character, sacrificially living for others, proclaiming his greatness? Because according to Paul, the good days are not those that have no problems. They're those that advance the gospel. Paul continues, um, in order that they might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. And here we get to the answer of how Paul can consider the worth of Jesus to be so great that it makes life's circumstances insignificant by comparison. Paul spoke in the previous verse of knowing Christ, of gaining Christ. And here he adds, and be found in him. Paul is speaking of the deep, intimate relationship between believers and Jesus. Theologians refer to this as union with Christ. The term union with Christ doesn't appear in the Bible, but some form of in Christ, in him, with Christ, through him, is found dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament. Union with Christ is a way to describe our association with Jesus uh, through which we receive all the benefits of Christ's redemptive work on the cross. 
I'll, I'll go over just one short section in the book of Ephesians to, to highlight what I'm referring to. And, and I'll just go over quickly and highlight all the things that it says to those that belong in Christ. Ephesians 1, beginning at, at uh, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, the beloved referring to Jesus. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul says that all of his achievements are nothing to, the, to those benefits of knowing Christ, gaining Christ, being found in him. In Ephesians 5, Paul um, is talking about the relationship between a husband and wife and how they become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. And we can walk away thinking, okay, I, I, I kind of understand. Um, my wife and I have this closest of relationship. Uh, uh, you know, I think of her before anyone else. I share things with her that no one else knows. It's the closest of relationships. Um, I want to live sacrificially for her. Um, I want to move forward with her goals, you know, uh, and we move forward together. Um, but that doesn't fully capture what our relationship is with Jesus. It's God's way of trying to tell us in the closest human relationship he can use what union with Christ is. Because here is what we know about union with Christ. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. As Jesus was obedient, those in Christ are counted as obedient. We were crucified, Scripture says, with Christ. So in some way, our dying, sinful bodies have in some way been, been crucified and God has raised us up with Jesus and seated us in the heavenly realm. So in the mind of God the Father, in his eternal plan, we are joined with his beloved son, Jesus, from eternity past into eternity future, which is already secured for us. The righteousness of Jesus is given to us. Our futures are secure. And that is why Paul can look at life and say the hard things are small and the comfortable things are garbage because of that comparison to what we have in Jesus.
Then he adds a 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Kind of bristle that, that he's got to throw the sharing and the sufferings. Like everything was sounding so, so uplifting and then that we may share in his sufferings. But suffering is a source of joy for Paul because it's certain evidence of that intimate relationship that he has with Jesus. It's, it's proof of his desire to be like him. My mind can dwell on, you know, when I read passages about suffering, how would I react if I was in a situation or an area of the world in which there's intense persecution? But that kind of thinking doesn't really serve me well, and it can make me lazy because I have daily opportunity to die to self? Do I give generously for the good of others so that it costs me something in my own life? Do I give my time for others, especially when it's uncomfortable and hard to bear just deep burdens that other people are going through? All believers, where whatever the situation to which we're called, um, are called to humble ourselves and live lives of sacrificial to service to others as our Savior did. And then uh, verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And this, this is the final proof. It hasn't happened yet, but this is um, Paul's goal, the final affirmation that on that day, the day is coming when he would be resurrected to be with his Savior. As I, as I think about the example Paul has, has given us and how he handles hard circumstances and comfortable circumstances, um, I, I kept having this kind of picture in my head, and I'll just leave you with this. Um, can everyone picture like a hardcore football fan and, and, and what they're like when they're watching a game. Um, you know, you probably have just this whole roller coaster of emotions. And Glenn was talking about being a, um, a, a pretty um, hardcore Dallas Cowboy fan. Um, I don't know that he throws stuff at the screen or anything like that. Well, they haven't won in so long that they're probably... <laughs> There probably is some frustration, but let's, let's say, and wild hypothetical, Dallas gets to a Super Bowl in Glenn's lifetime. <laughs> and so you all Eagles fans got up and wrote this. <laughs> okay, and, and what's going on as, you know, there's a bad call or there's a late hit on one of Glenn's favorite players, or there's a big play, and think of what his reaction is, you know, during those things. Now, just kind of change things a little bit and, and say Glenn wasn't able to, to see the game live. There was some, something that, that took him from watching the game, and he recorded it. And... As he's about to go in his house, he's excited to go see the game, you know, to replay it. His neighbor, who recently moved from Texas, 
and so has a legitimate reason to cheer for Dallas. Um, he, he says, hey, can you believe we pulled it out at the end? Right? So, so Glenn's watching this game, and think of what his reaction is now as those hard moments come up. Right? He might feel some indignation. Uh, that really wasn't just. That call was wrong. They should have penalized that guy. It's not the same level of stress because he knows where it's all headed. Right? And in, in the good times, you know, the big play, he's excited for that player, but it's not the important thing because he knows the final goal, really, what, what is at stake, has already been won. Okay, and, and that's what Paul reminds me of as we look at his life, as we look at how he deals with things. He goes through his life as a man who says, the victory's won. I need to, you know, uh, not that it's not hard, not that I can't mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice, but I know that, that I have a victory at the end. And it's a difference in the way he goes through his life. And, you know, I wonder what our witness would be like as a church if we could go through life in that way, if we could be so sure um, by what Jesus has done for us, so sure in our eternal outcome that it would make the, the hard things seem small, it would make the big things seem like not that big a deal um, because of, of what Jesus has given us. And how would others view us, how odd we would look to a world that, that doesn't react like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I, I, just, I just pray for you to be moving um, among all here and, and all those in, in our congregation, that, that we would see you as beautiful, uh, um, that we would see your promises as sure, that we would see a good day as one in which the gospel has been advanced regardless of what is going on around us. We need your help with us. It's not our, our natural reaction, um, but you have done a work in giving us faith, and we just pray for more so that we could live out um, the, the example that Paul lays before us. We thank you for this word and, and um, just pray that it would uh, uh, change us and, and, and how we go about our day. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.